Okay, happy Mother's Day to you all. Um, as I say that, about four of you have a look of panic on your face like, oh shoot, is that today? Um, you are in trouble and I cannot save you anymore. Um, so today, uh, you know that if you've been here, we've been preaching through a series we've called Christ Crucified. We scheduled in a break for this week. Um, so if you look on the cards, we had set this day apart because since it is Mother's Day and your minds are already thinking about where you're going for lunch and what you're going to stop by on the way and buy for your wife or mom on home, um, we figured today would be a good day to preach on and towards our women, uh, a good day to speak to our ladies and to our sisters. Brothers, as a warning to us, that doesn't mean you get to check out for the next 45 minutes or so. Um, you have in your lives women, wives, sisters, daughters, mothers, and the other ladies of this church. So you are plugged in with us. And, you know, even as we're going to preach on next week, we really want to see this place as a family because that's what God has us. And so in this family, when the scriptures speak to parents, our children don't check out. They listen in. When we speak to children, our parents don't tune out. When we speak to men, our women listen. When we speak to women, our men listen. When we speak to marrieds, our singles listen, and vice versa. Together as a family, every part counts for us. And so we want to hear in on all the parts so that we can encourage one another and push one another to allow the scriptures to shape our homes, our church, this community in particular. And so today, what we want to do is take this Mother's Day to cast a biblical vision for womanhood uh, and biblical femininity. So, so what I'm striving for is that when our daughters come to us and say, what does it mean to be a woman, we would have a good answer to give. Where are you going to go for that answer? And whatever you answer, will that look different that when our sons come to us and say, what does it look like to be a man? Are those answers different for us? And so what I want to do today is start, sort of literally just kick off a conversation. My hope and prayer is that God would give us a lifetime together where we can keep unpacking this conversation and keep revisiting it and keep fine-tuning it and learning from it and being humble and encouraging one another. So we're not going to by any means say all that needs to be said today. I really just want to start the conversation, a conversation we will revisit over and over and over again, but a conversation that's headed in the direction of this. How do our men and our women relate in God's world, in God's home, even in God's church here at Seven Mile Road? What does it look like to be a man of God, and what does it look like to be a woman of God? And are the two different? Right? What does it mean to be a woman? Now, to answer that question, you're going to go into one of two places. You're going to draw your answer either from the wisdom of the world and our culture, or you're going to draw your answer from the wisdom of God in the Scriptures. So I want to give you this disclaimer as we start. Much of what I'm going to say today is going to rub many of you the wrong way. That's, that's inevitable. I'm the one who has to do it, so you can take your shots at me, so that's, that's just part of the job, that's fine. Um, but what we want to do is cast a biblical vision. 
And, and if I say anything that's from me or foolishness, burn it away. Don't pay attention to it. But if it's from the scriptures, consider it. Wrestle with it in community. Figure out what it means to apply it and live out that vision. The wisdom of God is always going to cut against the grain of the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of our culture. And so we swim in a certain pond, and so we let this seep into us. It's the only air that we know, and so a very different oxygen will taste very different for us. And so I want you to consider the scriptures and how that might play out for us. So if you go to the wisdom of our world and its culture, what is woman or womanhood or femininity? Now some of you were brought up in an extreme of the culture where chauvinism was the way. You were taught by dad or by uncles or brothers or those over you that women were to be seen and not heard, that women were inherently subservient or inferior or less than. You've gotten educated, you've advanced in the world, and you've tossed that out as garbage. Rightly so. So hear me. Rightly so. There is no place in the scriptures or in this community for chauvinism. We, with you, completely reject that. It's unbiblical. Any man who lives that way or continues that lifestyle is either not a Christian or a very immature one. But, but the problem is sometimes that we swing from that extreme to another one that will swing to another extreme from our culture and by its wisdom all the way to the other side. And the wisdom of our culture, so if you watch enough TV or read the newspapers or the magazines, the wisdom of our culture basically says that men and women are completely equal and the same. They're equal and the same. So if you pay attention to our culture, we've got plenty to say about women, but very little to say about womanhood. Right? It's the difference between feminism and femininity. So it's the same root word, but one conversation will draw masses to a stadium. The other will be hard-pressed to pack out a classroom. Right? Feminism we could talk about all day. Femininity is much different. Elizabeth Elliot, a hero to many Christian women, a missionary, said that feminism is all for personhood, but hates womanhood and neglects femininity. And so the wisdom of our culture is that the ideal that we should strive for is where we basically flatten out and sand down all the distinctions and differences in gender and we come up with one sex fits all. An androgynous, unisex, one sex fits all sort of land. That we know we've arrived when a man can do everything a woman does and when a woman can do everything a man does. We feel like we've arrived if we've basically got the same thing with just different body parts. Right? That the only thing that separates us is just biology or just anatomy, but that there is no distinction between maleness or femaleness, between manhood or womanhood, or between masculinity and femininity. If you've heard the wisdom of our day and its culture, you can hear how silly this conversation goes. Right? The wisdom of our day says there is no difference between boy and girl, between man and woman. These are just social constructs. These are just inventions of the culture, things that we've created. If you spend three minutes with boys and girls, you realize how silly that is, right? how foolish that wisdom is. 
Last week, I was at Jim and Lena's house, and Winston and Asha were there, and our four children were playing together. So you've got Nehemiah, Elias, Isaac, and Hannah. Nehemiah is playing with a stuffed bear, but he's not playing with it in the normal way. He's playing with it with Winston, where they're pretending the stuffed bear is like a grenade, and he's launching it at Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is trying to dodge for dear life. And he loves the game because he's, he's in call of duty, he's in war, and he's got to run away from the bear and from Winston. So the first kid's at war. Elias has a bat in his hand, right? And he is smacking everything and everyone he can. He's walking around the room, hitting the wall, hitting the table, smacking my face. Everywhere he can go, he's ready to, to beat with this thing. Isaac doesn't even have coordination between hand and feet. But what he's doing is he's grabbing onto your face and trying to rip your lips off or grabbing onto your neck and trying to peel the skin away. So this kid's already ready for a fight and he's not one. And then there's Hannah, okay? Hannah, I'm not making this up, is trying to get Isaac to sit still long enough so that she could comb his hair and then give him a kiss, right? And he keeps trying to peel her face, but she keeps trying to reach in to give him a kiss. It's just silly, if you think about it for three seconds, that all of this is a one-sex-fits-all. There is no distinction between manhood and womanhood, between masculinity and femininity. We think we've arrived, we're advanced and modern and sophisticated. If we can get a more neutered personhood, not manhood and womanhood, just personhood. So what's our advice, the culture's wisdom to our men? It's to what? Get in touch with your feminine side. There's just one problem. We have no feminine side, right? It's like one pastor said, dogs don't have a cat side, right? My feminine side is called Shainu. That's the only feminine side we've got, right? But that's Father's Day in June, so we'll come back to that. What's the wisdom of our culture and our day for our women? It's to be strong, independent, successful women. Okay, so what's your picture, mental image, of the strong, successful woman? Maybe your mind goes to the high-powered CEO who's got a high-ranking job and a big paycheck, who if she has children, they are in daycare all day, who spends minimal time at home, but earns a big title and a big paycheck. Let me tell you who, even on this day, you probably don't think of. Mom. Right? When you think of the strong and successful woman, in all likelihood, if you're honest, you don't think of mom. Because in our culture and in our day, where do we value more? The marketplace or the home? The marketplace. What it means to have arrived, what it means to be successful, is to thrive and advance and be at the top of the marketplace. Which ironically, in the scriptures, is, is actually the other way around. The scriptures prize the domain of the home. And cherish and speak to the value and importance of the home. But our wisdom says if you can free yourself from husband and home and children, then you've got a shot at being successful, at, at having arrived. Right? We, we live in a day where we despise or diminish or minimize the call of wife or the call of homemaker or the call of mom. And, and what I want to ask is, where has the wisdom of our day and our culture gotten us? We have a lot more technology, but are we really more advanced than all the centuries that we have passed? 
That's an important question. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery, that we've got this idea that because we live in this day, we are far wiser than all those who preceded us. But consider our day. Women are liberated and free. And yet women are perhaps seen as objects more than they have ever been. Pornography is an industry that exploits women. And yet, pornography has not been shut down in this day of the liberated woman. It is a growing industry faster and more than ever before. We have more divorces, not less. Smaller families, not bigger ones. We have more abortions, not less. Because we have not called dads to be dads, to work, to provide, to defend and protect, we have more deadbeat dads who have bailed out and left mom to be single parent, both dad and mom, than ever before, particularly in our own city of Philadelphia. We have children growing in a generation where they have more minimal contact with parents than ever before. More children on medicine, more children in trouble, more children who are on the verge of delinquency than ever before. In fact, one expert said that we are, for the first time in history, at a generation where children will have more likely grown up in an institution than at home. And all of that is a far cry from the picture of happiness seen in Psalm 128. In Psalm 128, this is the vision cast out. You have a dad who has worked hard to provide food for his home, and they sit at the dinner table with wife by side, and the seats are filled with godly sons and daughters. All right, so when you hear all this, please hear one thing. I am not advocating for a traditional home. I'm not saying we take a time warp and go back to the 20s or 30s, though that was better. What I am advocating for is a biblical home. And there is a difference. And if it resembles something from times past, don't chuck out the whole thing because we've advanced. What I want us to do is grapple with the scriptures and consider what is biblical womanhood and what is biblical femininity. So if we'll consider the wisdom of the scriptures, here's what I want you to hear. Anytime Jesus or the apostles speak of men and women, of marriage, of home, where do they go? They open their Bibles and they always start right at the beginning. So some people will come to Jesus and ask him a question about marriage and divorce, and he turns to Genesis 1. The apostle will be asked about the question of men and women, and he goes to Genesis 1. Their thinking is, if you want to know how men and women are to relate, what biblical manhood and womanhood is, consider how God designed it. Consider how God made it before the fall. And if you can see God's design from before the fall, you can see how God desired the world to be. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to page 1, if that's what it is. Genesis 1, we're going to be in the first three chapters. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Let me pray while you turn there, and we'll ask for God's help as we consider this difficult topic. Lord, we do thank you for this time where we could come together and sit under the authority of your word. We pray that you would make us humble so that we would sit under your authority. I pray that our experience, our wisdom... Even uh, what we see in our culture, our day, and our world would not be put over and above your scriptures, but that you would give us humility to consider what your scriptures have to say, that we would not have fear in our hearts, that we would not have guilt or condemnation which comes from our enemy, but that we would have conviction and that we might consider what it would look like to obey your word. 
I pray that you would shape our community by your word and create something so beautiful that our world might long to have a part of it. We pray that we would have the wisdom of God. And I pray, Holy Spirit, specifically today for me, that you would let my words be bound under your authority. Do not let one word exceed your bounds, but keep me within the frame of Scripture so that what I might say might be from you. Any foolish or errant word, I pray that you would take away from our memory. But any word that is faithful to your word, I pray that you would dig deep into our hearts and plant it in good soil, that it might bear good fruit for our lives, our community, and this world. It's a big prayer. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Genesis 1, this is how it begins. In the beginning, God. So the Bible starts with God. We want to start this conversation the same way. In the beginning, God. A week ago, we met our men for our theology track on a Saturday morning, and this was the doctrine we studied together, the doctrine of the Trinity. So here's what the scriptures say about our God, that our God is triune, that he is one and three. That we have one God, we're not polytheistic, we're monotheistic, we have one God, but this one God has eternally existed in three distinct persons. And we've said that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is together God, but that they are three persons. And we held this mystery, we didn't try to answer it, we didn't try to resolve it, but we tried to be faithful to this oneness and threeness, this unity and diversity. And we said that if you stray from it, even a hair to one direction or the other, you're in heresy. So, so we have a picture of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit who are completely one and yet distinct and different with even different roles. So that God the Father is the head whom God the Son submits to. And together, God the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. And so there's a hierarchy and a subordination and roles within the Godhead, but that it is not inequality. There's no competition between the Son and the Father, but rather there's a dance within the Godhead where the three relate to one another in perfect harmony, in beauty, in love, equal but different, equal but distinct. And if you take that away to either degree, you're in terrible heresy. If you take away their differences, their distinctness, we said that you're in an ancient heresy called modalism. Half our guys didn't know what that was, but we loved the word and we threw it around as an answer for every question. Not half our guys, just one guy, right? Jim. But anyway, um, right? So, so you were in one heresy. If you went to the other side and said, no, 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 there's no distinction, but there, there's, there's inequality, now you were in a different heresy. If you said, wait, if the son submits to the father, he can't be completely equal. Now you were in a heresy called Arianism. So, so you, what you've got to do is keep the balance of the two, that God is completely one and yet completely three distinct persons, equal, but different roles, different callings. Now you ask, Ajay, what does any of that have to do with femininity or womanhood? Everything. Because I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we read Genesis 1:27. Because this is what it says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That when God created mankind, he made them in his image. So humanity bears the fingerprint of God. Like children image their parents. So there's something about us that reflects the truth of who God is. 
And God created us male and female. He created us equal but different, and this creation reflects the unity and yet diversity of God. That our calling, our roles, our differences are not the product of the fall. That's what I want you to hear. That's chapter 3. The differences between men and women is not the result of man. It's not the result of sin. It's not the result of the fall. These distinctions are designed by God. In his creation, before the fall, before there was sin, in the good design of God, we were made equal but different. That God would look over this world as he does in Genesis 1.31 and say, this is all very good. That when he looked at the man who was made different than the woman and their differences went beyond biology and anatomy, he said, this is good because they reflect my image. So manhood and womanhood, masculinity, femininity, this is rooted in the creation of God before sin in the good design of God. All right, so I want to look at that a little bit closer. And we want to pay attention particularly today towards the woman. Verse 27, God created the woman in the image of God. So hear that. Biblical femininity, biblical womanhood means that our women were created in the image of God. That you are no less in significance, in worth, in value, in dignity, in your calling to glorify God, created as daughters of God, no less than any man, any husband, any brother, anyone. That we together share equally the image of God. That you women reflect the image of God equally, not a hair less than the men. The men do not reflect God even a shred more than you, but that you were created in the image of God. This is why we hate the truth of an economist article that maybe some of you read, that throughout the world, in places like India where many of you are from, where I am from, and China and others, there is a war being waged on girls that you find out that your child in the womb is a girl and you have abortion as though women were somehow less. And we want to say in Genesis 1.27, God has said that the woman images God equally with the man. That when you are granted by God a daughter, you have gained nothing less than when you are granted by God a son. And that when you are given a son, you gain nothing more than when you are given a daughter. We image God equally. And consider when this is being spoken. This is not after political campaigns or the feminist agenda. This is not after the 21st century and we've become modern and sophisticated. To patriarchal ancient Israel, Moses went to all the men and said, every woman in this camp, every one of our sisters, our daughters, our wives and our mothers, reflect God's image just like we do. So biblical womanhood is rooted in this. You are created in the image of God. Verse 28, and God blessed them. So that's what I want you to hear. Woman, you are created in the image of God and equally approved and loved by and dear to and near and close to God. Not a shade difference than your husbands, your fathers, your brothers, or the other men. That we are all equally blessed by God. And that's true in creation and true in the new creation. 
True when Yahweh made us and true when Jesus remade us. So that's why Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That when it comes to redemption, when it comes to salvation, all of us are equally drawn to Christ, close to Christ, blessed and loved by Christ. Created in His image, blessed by God. Verse 28. And then the call comes, before the sin, before the fall, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule over it. And so too the man and the woman is given this call to come together for the process of making babies. And all the husbands said, Amen. Right? Come on, that was a good one. Right? So, so you're to come together. The man cannot do this alone. The woman is to come together and help to be fruitful, to fill the earth with godly offspring so that they could produce culture and that what started in the garden would cover the face of the earth like waters cover the sea and these sons and daughters would glorify God and the woman will participate in that by being mom. She will bear the children and be mom. So pre-fall in the good design of God is a call to motherhood. That what we celebrate this day is not a social construct or imagined by men, but designed by God that your motherhood is how God made you and it's good. So you are made in His image, blessed by God, called to be a mom. Okay? Equal in so many different ways and different in so many beautiful ways. Okay, flip to Genesis 2. Now you're going to get the creation story again, except this time zoomed in greater detail. So if chapter 1 is wide-angle lens, chapter 2 is zoomed in closer, particularly considering the creation of the man and the woman. Again, remember, we're still pre-fall. Genesis 3 hasn't happened. This is God's good world over which he's going to say, this is all very good. In the first nine verses, you find that God makes the man, and to the man is given this mandate, you are to work the garden and keep it. And so this call to work is given to Adam. It's his responsibility to work and to keep the garden, to provide for wife and children. He is to work and keep the garden. But again, we'll get to that in June for Father's Day. Okay, so then we get to verse 18, and there we find the woman. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Okay, so far, womanhood, womanhood in the biblical terms, created by God, blessed by God, called to be fruitful as mom, and now called also to be wife. Calls also to be helper. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so within the design of God before the fall is a call to come alongside and help. That the woman is not to rule over and above the man, nor be ruled below the man, but to come alongside and help the man. That God has called the man to initiate, to lead, to be first among the equals, and the woman to respond and receive this leadership and to help, to come alongside to help. And, and please hear me that this term of helper is not somehow a derogatory or demeaning term. God in the Psalms and in Hebrews is called a helper. 
And this woman is to receive and encourage and affirm the initiative and the leadership of the man and respond by coming alongside and helping to fulfill God's call on their lives. All right, am I in trouble yet? Okay, we'll keep going till I get in trouble. So chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, God causes the man to fall into a sleep. When he wakes up, he has a naked bride standing next to him. That is perhaps the greatest nap in all of history, right? And again, all the brothers said, amen. Okay, and he literally breaks out in chapter 2 in song, the very first song ever sung. He says to this woman, you are flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. You would sing too if all you had seen were hippos and rhinos and orangutans and now you wake up and she's standing there. You would burst out into R&B or whatever you would sing and so does Adam, right? You are flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone and he sings. So before the fall, before Genesis 3, in the good design of God, she's made in the image of God, blessed by God, daughter of God, created to be fruitful as mom, to be a helper as wife. Genesis 3 comes and everything is destroyed. Everything is corrupted. You get Genesis 3 and sin enters the world and now all of this is fractured and broken and ruined. In Genesis 3, you know that the serpent who we've talked about, Satan, the one who hates God and so hates us, comes into the garden and he begins the conversation with the woman. Now some say that's because the woman was more gullible I don't know that you could prove that from the scriptures, but what I can see is that Satan hates God and so inverts God's design. This man was created first, to him was given the commandment not to eat the fruit, and this serpent who hates God carries on the conversation with the woman. And the man is standing there the whole time, hands in his pocket, not defending, not protecting, not leading, not initiating, silent. The woman takes the fruit, eats, and then gives to her husband who's with her, he eats sin. And in Genesis 3, 14 and onwards, God curses the man and the woman. And what I want you to see is their curse. Notice their curse. We've already said their differences, their cause, is not the product of the fall, but it is corrupted by the fall. Their differences are not created by the fall, but they are corrupted by the fall. And so to each one, God curses them towards their calling, towards their domain. The man was, in Genesis 2, called to plant, to work, to keep the garden. His orientation, his domain, if you will, is towards work, towards the marketplace. And that's precisely where God has cursed him. So that now, if he's going to provide, if he's going to fulfill his call, he's going to do it how? With the sweat of his brow? Everything he works for is going to now war against him and work against him. The ground that he's supposed to till is now going to have thistles and thorns and it's going to be cursed. If he's going to be a breadwinner, verse 19, then he will eat his bread by the sweat of his face. So brothers, if it is hard for you to work, to provide for a home, to pay the bills, this is the curse. But again, that's Father's Day in June. What about the woman? She is called to be fruitful, to build the home, to be a helper, to be the wife. Her orientation, her domain is towards the home. And so in biblical womanhood and femininity, your primary, first among your callings is homeward. Hear that. I know that that is 
cuts across the grain of our culture, but hear that throughout the scriptures, if you're a wife and a mom, your first primary orientation and calling is towards the home. Again, I've said that there's lots more in this conversation that we need to have. We haven't addressed single women who are completely feminine. We haven't addressed all kinds of the other questions, but, but let's kick the conversation off today. And, and what I want you to hear is throughout the scriptures, this homeward domain and orientation is a good one. It's a noble one. Proverbs 14 verse 1 says, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Proverbs 18 and 19 says that the man who finds a good wife finds favor from the Lord, obtains a good thing from the Lord. Psalm 128 says that the man who has a woman who is a wife and a mother is blessed. Titus 2, as Paul is talking to the church, says this, Older women are to train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So as Paul is talking to the church in Titus, he says, Older women, train the younger women to be godly. And what does that look like? It looks like teaching them to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, working at home, kind and submissive. That if you're training them and pouring into them what it looks like to be a good wife and be a good mom and build a good home, you are doing something godly. Today, this morning, I preached at St. Mark's before coming here. I pleaded with the older women there, many of them who are 80, to consider in this season of how things work out to be here so that they might pour into us who are young and new and immature so that they might train us from decades of following the Lord what it looks like to be godly women, what it looks like to serve God, to honor God. So what I'm saying is that being a homemaker and being a wife and being a mom is a noble calling. That as we celebrate motherhood today, I want you to hear what the scriptures say about them so that you might celebrate them rightly and fully. That it's not a calling that's to be dismissed. That if you're a mom, you truly are in full-time ministry. I mean that. That's not pep talk to fill your heart. You are in full-time ministry. And your calling is a good and noble one. You are not building buildings. You are not building up a business. But you are building a home. And in those homes, you are building little souls that will last forever. Every business you work for will eventually crumble. Every company you serve will eventually close. Every pursuit you take will eventually cease. But your call is to build up souls that will last an eternity. As the theologian Gladiator once said, what you do in life echoes an eternity. What you pour into for this period of 18 years echoes for the rest of their life and for eternity. You may turn down great job offers, but there is one job offer you will never get again, and that's that span of 18 or 20 or whatever years to pour into these children. Now, I know that there are practical questions. Ajay, by this, are you saying that a woman should never work outside the home? Hear me. Proverbs 31 paints the picture that Lena read of a godly woman who works 
So, so she works, she sells, she invests, she buys property. So she works. But all that she does is not in neglect to her home, to her children, to her husband. And so I'm not giving you an answer. I'm not going to give you an easy one. What I'm going to say is wrestle with the scriptures and actually consider what does it look like for us to shape our homes, our marriages, our lives, our church in this way. Uh, what does it look like for us to fulfill God's call on our lives and not neglect it and carry out the many responsibilities that we have? Right? So these are good questions. So I want to say this for our women here. If you are a mom, a full-time mom, don't despise your calling and also don't look down on the other women who work. But be involved in community and don't look down as though they're less moms or less wives. Encourage them to be who God has called them to be. And if you're a woman in this community who works, don't look down on the moms and the homemakers as though they're less or not as bright or less ambitious, but encourage them and call them to be who God has made them to be. So that in community, through many, many conversations to come, we would consider what it looks like for our lives, our homes, and our church to be shaped by God's word. So if this woman's domain is towards the home, Genesis 3 says that's exactly where God cursed her, right? It's in this call of raising a home, of helping a husband, of nurturing children and building a home that there is a war against her domain. If the man was called to the garden to work and hits cursed, so the woman who's called to build up a home receives a curse. Genesis 3.16 says that it's in pain that she will bear children in pain that she will bring them forth. So you moms, especially you first-time moms, was bearing a child painful? My wife has had one child, and she is already the preacher of the gospel of Epidural, right? So everywhere she could, if she had tracks, she would hand it out to every woman she can because childbearing is painful. And not just birthing them, but raising them is painful. This work is cursed. It's difficult, it's with pain that you'll teach them to obey and pain that you'll teach them to eat and to sleep and all your work is somehow working against you and difficult and hard. And she's also cursed, not just in her call to be mom, but cursed in her call as helper and wife. So in 3.16 it says, Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. In chapter 4, you find that Eve's son Cain is tempted to murder her, his brother and there God warns him, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. You must rule over it. And in the same language is used here in chapter 3 to say, this woman who was made to be a helper will now find herself opposed to the one she was created to help. And so now there's going to be conflict in the marriage. She's going to seek to rule over him. She's going to seek to master him. She's going to seek leadership. And he will respond in his own sinful way by dominating and ruling over. He was created to love her, have her by her side, and he'll respond by now crushing and ruling over. And so now you have feminism and you have chauvinism, you have conflict in the home because of the fall. So but before we leave Genesis, I want to show you one more thing. She's created by God, in the image of God, blessed by God, called to be fruitful as mom, called to be a wife and a helper. Genesis 3.20. This is moments after the fall. 
The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So they're done with the fall. Adam names his wife and he names her Eve. And he says, because she was the mother of all the living. Here's what's interesting about that. Does Eve have any children at this point? No. She doesn't get children till chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and they conceived Cain. So with no biological children, Adam names his wife Eve and says, you are the mother of all the living. And that's because by God's design, without even the biological children, she is wired to be motherly. And that is a good and noble thing. She's wired to be helpful, wired to care, wired to nurture. Those of you who are parents who have daughters, when does this instinct set in to your children, your daughters? When, When do you begin to see them want to help and to nurture and care for and mother? Right? Your daughters don't want action figures. They don't want race cars. They want a baby, right? Preferably a doll that they can feed and poop and clean, right? They, they, that instinct is set into them very early, right? If you have children who are not even five yet, what do you catch them doing? Disciplining their dolls, right? So you go, where's, where's the Susie doll? Oh, she's in timeout, Right? I'm not making this up. Shainu and I were in the living room, heard noise in the bedroom. We went and watched as Hannah was disciplining her book. Not even a doll. She just had a book in her hand and she said, obey, okay? Otherwise, discipline, right? She's ready already. It's in her. So what I'm saying is this design of God, single or married, widowed, whatever your stage in life, God has made you biblically feminine and woman. And that is a good and godly thing. Not to be minimized, not to be diminished, but rather to find ways to express who God made you to be. At this community, this church, we need you to be godly women, to be nurturers, to be helpers, to come alongside, to fulfill God's call, to be daughters of God, to model what it would look like to be godly women. So here's everything we've said so far. That God, who is Trinitarian, unity and diversity, one God, equal yet different, has made us in his image male and female, masculine and feminine, with manhood and womanhood. He has made us equal but different. And those differences are good. And to our sisters, to the ladies, he has called you to be image bearers of God, blessed by God, daughters of God, redeemed by God, to be fruitful to be helpers, to be motherly, to build up homes, to raise children, to receive and respond to the leadership of of even the men. So what are some takeaways? On this Mother's Day, Seven Mile Road Women, I'm pleading with you, be godly women. You don't have to be men. The wisdom of our culture says compete with the men, don't trust the men, rule over the men, prove to the men that you're every bit capable as they are. And the wisdom of God says, daughters, you have nothing to prove. You have nothing to earn. You were created in my image to fulfill God's call in your life. Jesus is not less than the Father. The Spirit is not less than the Father and Son. You are no less with nothing to prove. But together... 
we could live out the dance God has called us to dance. Right? When a man leads in a dance, it's not because the woman is less. And when the woman compliments that dance, it's not because she's less. It's rather more beautiful when they fulfill their calling. When they come together and complement one another in beautiful harmony to the glory of God. So on this day, you could receive femininity and womanhood and affirm it and rejoice in it. That you don't have to take it on hesitantly, that it's not the preacher put that on you, but that this is the good design of God. And you will be most satisfied in fulfilling God's call on your life. That you could actually encourage the men here to be men. Hear me to that. You could receive and affirm our men to be godly men. I know that in our culture, in your own homes, in this church, we have often failed you. We have not led well. We have not been good leaders or fathers. You've had to drag us to church. You've had to drag us to family prayer. You've had to put up with either our laziness on one side or our chauvinism on the other. But even as Christ has forgiven you, so forgive and be patient. Allow the gospel to set you free to call the men of this church and in your homes to be godly men. So that in a season, our daughters might ask, what does it look like to be a woman? And we would have really good answers to give her. And we would cast a vision with our words and with our lives of what that looks like. And that we would do this so well, this is my prayer, so well here that those outside of this church would long for this to be true for them. That they would see that we believe something that is so radically countercultural, so backwards and absurd, and yet in this community, women are loved and prized and served, that the men are dying to serve them, that all would see it and go, there's something beautiful about that, and long for it if we could play these parts well. And to our brothers and our men, you need to respond biblically even today to women. So on this day, celebrate and thank. Proverbs 31 says, A husband praises his wife. That he says, Sit by the gates and let everyone see the fruit of your hands. That the most encouraging person in this wife's life is her husband. The one who admires her the most is him. And where you and I hear me, where we have failed at this, repent. Repent even today. Repent and confess to women that we have either used or not led well or domineered over or been lazy, that we are sorry. You're not the encouraging type. That's not the kind I am. Well, be that kind because that's what the scriptures call us to be. That's what God's calling me to be. That where we have failed, our women will hate the design of God because we have failed to live the design of God. Because we have not been Christ-like, they will not want to be church-like. But where we will lead like Christ, where we will lead by wrapping a towel around our waist and washing their feet, they will gladly respond. And so where we have failed, repent. Where they have prospered and are doing this well, encourage and celebrate. Here's the last thing I want to say. All right, you've heard all of this. Maybe some of you think this guy and these, this church is so backwards. Maybe all you feel is just the weight of this curse. Right? You're at work and you feel your work warring against you. You're at home and it's no easier. It's not like you can take a breath when you get home, but rather you feel the pain of child rearing, you feel the pain of marriage, 
You feel like every domain God's called you to is cursed and difficult and hard. You sweat at work, and when you come home, you have sinful children and sinful spouses, and there's conflict and strain and pain. If you feel the weight of the curse of Genesis 3.16, what I want you to do is today even contemplate on the promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. Because if you feel the pain of this cursed world, what it's supposed to do in your heart is cry out, how badly do we need Jesus? Because Genesis 3.15 says, from the seed of the woman would come the offspring who would crush the head of the serpent. That in the strain you feel at home, in the strain you feel in marriage, in the strain you feel in parenting, your soul would cry out, we need Jesus. That's what it cried out in Genesis, that's what it will cry out in your heart. I need Jesus. The one who was born of woman to live in a way that men, we would have someone to look to and follow who lived in submission to the Father joyfully in a way that women you would look to and have a vision to follow, who lived as we were called to live, and when we failed to live as he did, died for us in our place, who crushed the head of the serpent, who deceived us, who redeemed us from the curse, so that we, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, might become sons and daughters of God. So let Genesis push you again to the gospel. And let it push you to Jesus Christ, born of the woman, to redeem Eve and all her sons and daughters. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this time in your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would now bring application to our hearts. We do pray for this community as a whole, that we would be a place by your Holy Spirit that lives out the call of God, of godly manhood and godly womanhood, and does it in such beautiful ways that it would be a witness and a light to the world. This word calls us to mission, to live in such a way that men will see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven, that our lives would demand a gospel explanation, that when women see, hear, women who are godly and loved and submissive and come alongside as help and love the call of mom and love the call of wife, that it would demand for those who don't know you to say, why do you live that way? Where does that come from? Why do you believe what you do? And we would point to the gospel, to Jesus Christ. That in this community, our men, who we'll talk to in months to come, would live in such ways that love and serve and protect and defend, who work hard, who don't bail, who don't abdicate, who are not lazy, who are not chauvinistic, and live in such ways that men in our culture would see it and say, how do you live that way? Why do you believe what you do? Why do you suffer and set back when it'd be easier to rule over that we would give a gospel response? That your word would find its way to our heart, that we would celebrate today our wives, our women, single, married, and even particularly today, our mothers. We thank you for the ways in which they reflect the beauty of Proverbs 31, that they love their children, that they're helping their husbands, that they're building homes, that they're investing, that they're wise, that they're working hard. We thank you for your spirit. Any good in them comes from Jesus. And I pray that you would encourage them and and build them up to be godly women. We pray that this place would reflect the image of God and do so really well. There's much more to say. We ask that you would answer the prayer better than we've prayed it. In Jesus' name, amen.